and you've all heard about it and watched the news reports about the tragic shootings in Las Vegas. Uh, we live in a world that uh, is fallen and broken, and we are all fallen and broken, and sometimes that evil uh, rears its head in very, very ugly ways and did last Sunday. I think um, we need to pray for the families who lost loved ones, and uh, we need to pray for those that are wounded and need healing. Um, and we'll do that in just a second, um, because our God is a God who we believe hears prayers and will answer them, and, and our God is a God who can bring life out of death, and uh, that's what we need to see happen in these circumstances. And then uh, we also have a, a bunch of men up at the retreat this weekend, and uh, so they are having a service right now, just as we are. Uh, after having a huge breakfast of eggs and potatoes and bacon and sausage and bread and donuts. And so they're going to need more prayer than we do <laughs> just to stay awake, I think. But uh, so we'll pray for them. And then we'll, we'll also pray um, that God would speak to us. So let's, let's bow. Father, we've been singing about the fact that we need you and uh, we do. We need you to work in our lives because we are very broken. We are not at all all that we should be. We need the forgiveness that Jesus offers, and we need the transformation that he and your spirit and your word can bring about in our lives. And we pray for those, Lord, uh, who the families where loved ones were lost a week ago. Uh, words actually honestly escape us, God. What, what do we say? How do we, how do we pray for them? We would ask for a miracle. We would ask that somehow in the darkness and the evil of what transpired, uh, some kind of resurrection good would come of it, redemptive good. Pray for Christians in that area with the opportunity to love on and care for others that they would really do well and shine. We pray for families um, that are grieving because they have somebody wounded. We pray for healing for those that were wounded. And we know that we're joining our prayers with untold numbers of others who look at this awful event and just ask the question, why? And we confess we don't know. But we look forward to the day when your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. For that is certainly not the case uh, in the present. Many things happen that are not your will. Lord, we also rejoice that when we gather with others like this morning, we, we can be reminded in the things that we sing and pray and say and do that, that um, we need you. We need you right now, Father, to speak to us. We come into this room, some of us just rejoicing at great things that you were doing and very, very uh, thankful. Others, Lord, challenged right to the max and not sure how we get through today or tomorrow. And we need you. All of us, we need you. So teach us now, Father, as we look at your word. And uh, may this time that we spend with you be impactful in our lives and change us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been talking in recent weeks about our ideas about God. And I've been saying that our most 
important ideas, the ideas that actually determine whether we live purposeful lives, meaningful lives, uh, lives that matter, whether we even persevere through things like trials in our lives, all have to do with our ideas about God more than anything else. If our ideas about God are wrong, if we uh, harbor and maintain and even grow misconceptions in our thinking and in our lives about God, well, those misconceptions can be deadly to us. They really can. They can lead to us putting distance between ourselves and God or us not listening to God or us not having the faith, the trust, or the love for him that we need to have in a very difficult situation. This weekend, we're gonna take up a, another notion that many people have about God, and that is the notion or the idea that God is cold-hearted. It's a very common misconception. The idea that God doesn't much care about what's going on in my life. He's just sort of kick-started the universe and then stepped way back and kind of let us spin for ourselves, sort it all out on our own. He's not really very available to us. Uh, he's not really listening when we pray or when we talk to him. He can't or he won't actually do much about the circumstances that I presently find myself in. He's just sort of cold-hearted. Uh, I think many people wrestle with this, not so much for academic reasons, but maybe personal experience. Personal experience has led them to what I would call a misconception, led them to that kind of conclusion. You know, like when a prayer that gets prayed over and over and over again, and it feels like it's going unanswered, or when suffering or injustice seems to just be overlooked, or when something happens that's so tragic, so evil, and people think, well, why? Why, God? Why didn't you do anything about that? You're God. You could have done something. Why didn't you? Like the thing we were just praying about, this thing that happened a week ago in Las Vegas, 58 dead, 489 wounded. Where was God in that? Doesn't God care? Why didn't God prevent that? I've heard so many people say, you know, they're praying for the victims of the family. They're praying for the families that have wounded in them. They're praying for peace. They're praying for comfort. They pray that God will do something with and through this awful, awful thing that happened. Well, what if he doesn't? What if he won't? What if God really isn't listening? What if God isn't able? What if God doesn't care? And these are not new questions, not by any means. In fact, these are questions that have been asked throughout all of human history. One of Israel's most famous kings, King David, wrestled with this very question on multiple occasions. In Psalm 13, David writes these words, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And how long here, you know, you understand, really means how much longer. In other words, he's already been waiting. He's saying, how much longer, Lord? David's been praying. Uh, he's been hoping. He's been waiting for God to show up in his circumstances. But thus far, it seemed to David like God was nowhere to be found. David wanted to know, how long? You see, even the writers of scripture wrestle with this question. Does God care? Does he notice? Is he gonna show up and do something? And the main question for them may not have been the question of, you know, is God good? But, you know, the main question may be, what good is he? And maybe you've been in a place where you felt like that. 
Maybe you've been in a place, you know, once upon a time, you felt close to God, but not so much anymore. Maybe you've been praying, not just for days or weeks or months, but maybe for years, and it doesn't seem like God's hearing your prayer or doing anything about it or answering that prayer. Maybe you're facing a pain or a loss right now, and you've been battling or possibly battling with something, a habit, an addiction. You've been going to church, you've been praying, you've been doing the right stuff, but where is God? And it feels like you're all alone in your situation. Someone who was deeply hurting, uh, somebody who was deeply angry, said one time, I can't prove God doesn't exist, but my life can prove he doesn't care. Feel the pain of that statement. There's a story in the Bible about three siblings, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. It's in John chapter 11. Many of you have heard their names. Many of you are familiar with their story. Something happens in their family that challenges every ounce of faith they have. It shakes them right down to their very foundation. And it leaves them wondering, God, where were you? God, why didn't you stop this from happening? Why didn't you answer our prayers? And for our time this morning, I just want to kind of walk through this story together. So if you have a Bible, you can get it out and turn to John 11. If you've got a smartphone, you can get it out and you can do whatever you want. And I'll think you're looking at scripture. You can um, turn to the gospel of John, John chapter 11. We're going to dive right in at the beginning, verse 1. It says, now a man named Lazarus was sick and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So the story begins, just like many other stories do in the Gospels, uh, with somebody asking Jesus to do something for them. Only this story is a little bit different than some of those other stories, because this is not a request that comes from a stranger. This is not just someone randomly in the crowd who asks for help. Jesus knows this family. Jesus loves this family. The town of Bethany is just a few miles east of Jerusalem. And when Jesus would travel from Galilee down to Jerusalem, we discover that he would occasionally stay with this family. And in fact, that's why John tells us it's the same Mary as the one who poured perfume on Jesus' feet. That comes in chapter 12, the very next chapter. What John is cluing us into is the fact that this is the same family you've heard about before. This is the family you're hearing about now. This is a family you're going to hear about in the next chapter. This is a familiar family. This is a family that Jesus knows, that Jesus spends time with, shares meals with, laughs with, cries with. It's a family full of Jesus' friends. In fact, Jesus is such close friends with Lazarus. I don't know if you noticed it, but when Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus, they don't even mention his name. All they say is, the one you love is sick. That's enough said. Jesus knows Lazarus is sick. And notice too, they don't even ask him for any help. They just tell him what's happening and they assume that he will be on his way right away. It's like, you know, Jesus, we know you. We know you care. We know you love us. We know what you can do. We need you now. We know you'll show up because that's what friends do for each other. So, hey, the one you love, Jesus, 
is sick. That's why it's a little surprising. It's a little shocking when we keep reading the story. Verses five through seven, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, we're told. It's like John is underlining that for us. Hey, before I tell you anything else, let's just, let me remind you, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. <laughs> really? Two more days? And then it says, he said to the disciples, let us go back to Judea. Now that's odd. That catches usually everybody's attention when they read this story. Jesus hears of this family's emergency, this family he knows, this family he loves, this family he stayed with. And then he basically does nothing about their situation. For two days, he does nothing. He waits. In fact, he waits until he knows that Lazarus has died. John writes and says, so then he told them plainly, he's telling his disciples plainly, Lazarus is dead and for your sake, for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Well, that's interesting. Believe what? Believe that you don't care about your friend? Believe that you had better things to do? Believe that you were preoccupied? Believe that you'd rather be out hanging around with your disciples? You know, what's interesting is uh, divine providence or coincidence here. Uh, you know, Lazarus' name in, in Hebrew means God has helped. That's what his name means, God has helped. But up to this point in the story, you would think exactly the opposite. God is doing anything but helping. Maybe even God doesn't care. Two days, two days go by. You know, this, uh, this space, this space between the request for God to help and when or if that help shows up. Why this space of two days? Why didn't help come right away, the help that they asked for, the help that they needed? Well, the answer to that question is a little humbling and a lot disturbing. Because whether we like it or not, the very first thing that we see in this story is that Jesus' actions are deliberate. He does what he does for a reason. It's not an accident that he waits. He does this on purpose. You see, there is something that Jesus wants us to believe about him. There is something Jesus wants us and the people then to see in him that is more important than healing Lazarus' sickness or Lazarus' disease. In fact, Jesus means to use Lazarus' disease, Lazarus' death, in fact, to accomplish a bigger kingdom purpose. And that purpose overrides Martha and Mary's prayers for healing their brother. God, we need you to do this. God, we need you to do this now. Well, God did answer their prayer by saying, no, no, I have something else in mind. Jesus is saying that there is something else that is even more important than healing their brother. And so after two days, the story tells us that Jesus finally does head back to Bethany. And uh, it'll take him several days to get back there. And when he arrives, he has three conversations. The first one is with Martha. Martha, as some of you remember from earlier stories about her, uh, she's the more outgoing, extroverted, take control, type A, intense, kind of maybe high-strung member of the family. So it's not really a surprise that when Jesus shows up, who's the first one out there to meet him? It's, it's Martha, right? Lord, Martha says to Jesus, 
If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Hmm. I love how honest she is. She doesn't sugarcoat it. Jesus, if you had been here, if you had just come a little earlier, you could have prevented this. You could have done something about this. She's very honest. And I think we have to be honest. You know, we have have to acknowledge that's okay. That's in fact, probably very good. Sometimes faith is just raw honesty. It's not all doctored up and dolled up, right? It's just honesty. It's talking about God, to, to God about what's going on inside of you, what's really happening there. And it may be yelling sometimes. It may be crying sometimes. It may be pouring out confusion and hurt and questions or whatever it is that's inside you. And Martha does that. She's honest. And uh, right or wrong, she's expressing herself honestly. And, and that is really what true faith does, even in circumstances that we don't understand. Jesus, if you had been here, you know, all of us have prayed prayers like this. If you had been here, my career would not have stalled. Jesus, if you had been here, my kids would not be struggling. Jesus, if you had been here, my marriage would not have failed. My heart would not be broken. Like many of us, Martha's faith has been shaken right down to the core. She is looking for answers, something to hold on to. And Jesus meets her right there in that moment. And he says, your brother will rise again. That's what he says, your brother will rise again. And Martha may be a little frustrated. It's, it's, we're not told that she is. Um, not sure, therefore. Uh, but she may be a little frustrated here. She says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She's saying, I, I've got that, Jesus. I know the theology. There's a day of judgment coming when everybody's going to be judged and the righteous will be resurrected from the dead. I know that. I know the promises. I am a faithful first century Jew. I believe the right theology, Jesus. And it's almost like Jesus slows her down or stops. She says, no, no, that's not the point. Your theology's fine, Martha, as far as it goes just doesn't go far enough. And then he says these words to her, words that no other first century rabbi ever spoke, okay? I mean, these are, these are incredible words. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. In other words, there's a kind of life, Martha, that death cannot touch. There's a kind of life that's available only through me, Martha, he's saying. You see, the reason why Jesus wasn't in a rush, why it's fine to arrive just when he did, he wants us to see the truth about who he is. And he uses this phrase in in this statement that he makes to Martha, this I am. As many of you know, that's a reference to the way God spoke about himself, God's personal name in the Old Testament, I am who I am, I am. What he's really saying to Martha is he's saying, Martha, I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just a counselor. I'm not just a religious leader. Uh, I'm not just a miracle working rabbi. I'm not just a family friend. Martha, you need to get this. I am God. That's what he's telling her. 
I am the creator. I am the sustainer. I am the maker of life and everything good. Martha, you're not waiting just for a prophecy to be fulfilled, a day in the future when the people will be judged and the righteous will be resurrected. Uh, You're not waiting for your theology to kind of work itself out. I am the embodiment of your theology. I am the object of your theology, Martha. And I'm standing right here before you. And I am up to something that you haven't begun to understand. You think of me as a teacher. You might think of me as a miracle working rabbi, but in truth, you have no idea. I didn't just come to improve your present circumstances or heal your brother of a disease. I came to conquer sin and conquer death and give you hope that goes even beyond and overcomes your greatest enemies of sin and death. (laughs) And then he asked Martha an amazing question. He says, do you believe this? Friends, do you see how, that how she answers that question depends entirely on who she thinks Jesus is. It's the same issue we have. You see, if Jesus is just a healer, if he's just a teacher, if he's just a spiritual leader, if he's just a voice of compassion or justice or love or mercy, that's great, but... At the end of the day, that doesn't offer any more hope today than, say, does George Washington or Martin Luther King Jr. or Abraham Lee. These were great people. They did great things. They did things that even have some impact today. Uh, But as far as offering me hope for today, let alone hope that overcomes my biggest problems, problems of sin and death, not so much. They're dead. So if that's all Jesus is, I mean, it, it doesn't matter if he arrives on time or two days late or two days early, sin is still sin. Death is still death. And the grave is still the grave. And none of us are gonna dodge it. You see, Jesus is challenging Martha with the the absolute ultimate question. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Do you believe this, he says? And if she does... If she does believe it, two days late, two weeks, two months, two years late, doesn't matter. He's the resurrection and the life. He's got a plan. Sickness is not an obstacle for him. Death is not an obstacle for him. So Jesus says to the disciples, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. In other words, so that you might know I am more than you think I am, more than you've understood up to this point me to be. So you see, the question is the same for us. Do you believe this? Do I believe this? That Jesus is, in fact, the resurrection and life. If you do believe it, it changes our perspective on everything. If he is the resurrection and the life, then he is bigger than any problem you face. I didn't say he's going to make that problem go away. I just said he is bigger than any problem you face. Doesn't matter what the problem is. And regardless when he shows up, in other words, regardless whether he follows your agenda, your criteria, or your timetable, right? Regardless when he shows up, he has a plan. And oh, by the way, it's the right plan. He is the resurrection and the life. You see, that's the question Martha is now wrestling with. Do I believe this? Can I trust him? 
And in a way, the story could end right there, and it'd be done. It'd be a good story. Jesus has told us who he is. He has given us a picture of what we should believe and how we should trust and how we can know that he cares because he certainly does. But the story doesn't end there. As Jesus is talking to Martha, he knows that someone very, very important is missing from the conversation, and it's Mary. She's apparently still inside the house grieving, okay? Mary knew Jesus was there, And yet she didn't come out to see him, at least not yet. Perhaps she felt her disappointment so deeply she could not even face Jesus. It's like those moments in life. I don't know if you've ever felt like this where things get so bad, you you don't want to pray. You don't want to go to church. You don't want to think about faith. You don't want to think about God. You just sort of want to curl up in a ball and, and die. It hurts so bad. Well, Jesus knows another conversation is needed. And so he actually sends Martha to go get Mary. Verse 28 says, the teacher is here, she said, Martha says, and is asking for you, Mary. You're gonna have to go see him now. You're gonna have to go out there. And Jesus is actually pursuing Mary. And Mary comes out to meet him and she falls at his feet weeping, we're told. And she says these words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Exact same thing Martha said earlier. Do you think they'd been discussing this? Think there'd been some conversations over the last four days around this? Where is Jesus? Why hasn't he come? Doesn't he care? Doesn't he love Lazarus? I don't get it. I don't understand. Why would he let Lazarus die? Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then the text goes on to say that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That's that's kind of amazing to me. The man who just a moment ago said, I am the resurrection and the life, and you just need to believe in me, is now deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Do you think he cares? Jesus asked a question, where have you laid him? And they say, come see, Lord. And now they take him to the tomb. And that's the end of Jesus' conversation with Mary. It's a very different conversation than he had with Martha. Very different. Martha needed to, she needed to personalize her theology and grow it. Wasn't quite big enough in terms of who it encompassed, right? And who it understood Jesus to be. Mary, on the other hand, I get the sense what she really needs is to see a glimpse of Jesus' heart. You know, she said the same thing to Jesus that her sister Martha had said, but now what happens in the story, there's a distinct turning point and we actually get to see the heart of Jesus. The next thing we're told in the text is that Jesus wept. Really? Do you think he cares? You know, in the first century, weeping was not actually a quiet thing, not usually. Uh, Weeping could be wailing. Weeping could be bawling. Weeping could be screaming. Now, we don't know how Jesus wept. We're not told. What we do know is that Jesus wept long enough and loud enough for everyone to notice. That we do know. Friends, here is proof positive, I think, that God is not cold-hearted. He is, in fact, brokenhearted. 
brokenhearted over sin, brokenhearted over the consequences that flow from sin, disease, destruction, war, greed, hatred, selfishness, death. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty six 36 says that then the Jews said, see how he loved him? See how he loved Lazarus? They all notice. They could see that Jesus cared, but there were still questions. Not so much about Jesus caring, but more about Jesus' capacity. You know, they know that he has healed people. They've heard these stories or they've actually been witnesses of them. But death, wow, that's different. That's a whole different problem. Does he have the capacity to do anything about that? Verse 37, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? In other words, they think, you know, that would have been the solution. Jesus, get here on time, come immediately and heal him. Heal this sick man. You've done this before so many times. But now it's too late. He's dead. What can you do about that? You see, they were just, they were a lot like Martha and a lot like Mary. They were very impressed with Jesus. I mean, I mean, here's a guy who teaches and does thing, things unlike any other ally. So they were very impressed with him. They knew that Jesus was someone special. Probably they were already leaning and strongly in the direction of thinking, this may well be the Messiah. This just might be the Messiah. But they didn't really get that he was the resurrection and the life. And then they, they observed the resurrection and the life weeping. But Jesus didn't weep because he lacked capacity or he lacked power. He wept because he cared. You see, in this moment, something ugly has happened. Something that was really never supposed to happen, not originally. This thing of disease, this thing of death, that wasn't part of God's original plan. Jesus sees everything right in front of him that he has actually come to fix, come to conquer, come to destroy, all the ravages of sin. He sees exactly what he is going to experience when he goes from here to Jerusalem and from the cross to the grave. Does God care about what's going on in this family's life? Does God care about what's going on in your life and mine? Yeah, he does. He cares enough to die for it so that it can be fixed. Jesus gave up everything to redeem us, came from up there, down here, lived among us, experienced temptation. And obviously endured and endured and endured all the way to the cross. That should have been enough to convince any and all of us that he cares, to show us that he loves us. But Jesus isn't finished yet. He gets up from this situation. He goes to the tomb and he says, take away the stone. <laughs> and uh, Martha, once again, you know, who else would it be? It's got to be Martha. Martha steps in, Lord. By this time, there is a bad odor for he has been there four days. She's saying, don't do this. Four days is a long time. We know that there was a rabbinic teaching in first century Judaism that actually taught, wrongly so, but actually taught that uh, the, the soul of the body, the spirit of the body stays with the body for three days. 
And then on the fourth day, leaves the body. Uh, we, we don't know if Martha and Mary, you know, embraced that false rabbinic teaching or, or what have you, but it is kind of interesting. It, it's four days, right? Way too long, way too long. The flesh is rotting. The soul is gone. Nothing can be done now, you see. Jesus, it's too late. Maybe if you had come when we called. Maybe if you had healed his sickness then, you could have done something. But four days, Jesus, don't roll away the stone. There's nothing you can do now, nothing whatsoever. Which brings us to the last conversation, a very one-sided, kind of interesting conversation. Jesus called in a loud voice. We read in verse 43, Lazarus, come out, he says. I'd have loved to have been there. Jaws, I bet, dropped, you know. But probably not initially for the right reason. I'm, I'm guessing people thought, that is the stupidest thing anybody has ever said. That is incredibly stupid. Like that's gonna happen. And then Lazarus comes out. <laughs> it did happen, yeah, it did. The text actually says the dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And ever since I've been a Christian and, and have read this story, I've wondered what this might've looked like. Now, his arms and hands and legs and so might've been wrapped individually, but we actually have examples of grave uh, cloths, you know, wrapping, and they were wrapped, you know, sort of a mummy fashion. So whichever the case, I mean, was Lazarus doing this? You know, was he... <laughs> I mean, what, what, I don't know, but I'm going to ask him someday. I, I, got, I got to find out what, what was that picture like exactly, you know, because Jesus says right away, take off the grave clothes. Maybe because he was, you know, coming out of the grave. I don't know, but it would have been something to see. I'll tell you the shock would have been something to see because I'm sure when everybody heard him say Lazarus come out, they really did think something along the lines of you got to be kidding You gotta be kidding. It's not gonna happen. Lazarus too, when he comes out, I'm guessing he said, you know, when they removed the, the cloths and so I'm, I'm sure he must've been thinking and probably said, hey guys, I'm back. I mean, think about it. I'm not sure for Lazarus, this is a good thing. <laughs> I mean, he was in a better place, right? Now he's back. Jesus obviously has some more things for him to do. But for, the point is this. Just when you think God can't, God can. And that's the point. Just when you think that God is four days late or four weeks late or four months late or four years late, he's not. He is right on time. He's got a plan and he is up to something. But for those four days, Mary and Martha and all of the people there gathered, they wondered, where is God? They lived with this crushing doubt, this sense of despair. Why hasn't he come? Why didn't he answer? For four days, they weren't even sure, some of them, whether Jesus cared until they understood that Jesus had a plan. And it wasn't their plan. It was bigger than their plan. Other things needed to be accomplished bigger things than a healing. And by the way, this wasn't the main event. 
Lazarus coming out of the grave was really just a resuscitation, you understand. I mean, it wasn't the final resurrection for Lazarus. It wasn't the resurrected body he was looking forward to and hoped to get one day. He was simply resuscitated. Unfortunately, one day off in the future, Lazarus was going to get sick again and the doctors weren't gonna be able to do anything about it and all the prayers in the world weren't gonna change it. It would be Lazarus' time to die again. It wasn't his final resurrection. But Jesus was pointing us to that main event, reminding us that a time will come when he will say to all of us, come out, rise up, and we will be raised. We will be given new bodies. You see, God is always up to something bigger than we can see, something bigger than we can fully fathom. The apostle Paul would later describe it this way when he wrote to the church at Corinth. This is how he described the time in which we live. He said, now we see, but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. You see, now is like those four days. Now is an in-between time. The kingdom is here, but not in all its fullness. See, now is that period of painful waiting. Now is like that poor reflection as in a mirror. But one day it will be clear. One day it will be clear what God has been doing. One day it will be clear why God seemed to delay. One day if we trust him, we will see clearly. We will see how much he cared. And we will see how he's been working behind the scenes. And we will see how much he has loved us, how much he has protected us, how much he has provided for us. And we will see what he is up to. We will see how much grace he has given us if we believe, if we trust. If we cling to him in faith, someday we will see clearly. You know, I think about those Christians. You know, we've read about them. We've heard stories about them. Christians in the first, second century um, AD. uh, And they found themselves waiting in the corridors underground of the Colosseum in Rome. And they had been rounded up for entertainment and They were going to be released into the Colosseum to face lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, yeah, there you go. And we can chuckle, but think about it. They're going into the arena. What do you think they were praying? God, get us out of here. God, save us. God, deliver us. God, protect us. And again and again and again and again, Christians were paraded into that arena and lost their lives at the hands of gladiators, at the hands of wild animals. And it became kind of a practice of Christians. Oftentimes in that arena situation, they would gather in a circle. There was no sense. They weren't going to fight lions and tigers and bears barehanded. And they would kneel down and they'd pray. It was terrible entertainment. It eventually stopped because it was such bad entertainment. The Colosseum would go silent. People didn't want to watch that kind of entertainment. And as the decades rolled on and It was the testimony of Christians like that and Christians still living in that time 
that actually conquered, conquered the empire of Rome. God was up to something. Some people paid for what he was up to with their lives. But did they die? Not according to Jesus. If you believe in me, you will never die, he said. God was up to something. Now, how do we know any and all of this could be possibly true? Because God gave us the ultimate guarantee, don't you see? He gave us Jesus. You see, Jesus came, Jesus suffered, Jesus wept, Jesus died, Jesus was buried. But on the third day, oh my goodness, he came back from the dead, resurrected. That's how we know. That is our guarantee. That's the central importance of the doctrine of the resurrection. That's why, that's why not only were they shocked, but there was the implications of the fact that he had come back from the dead. Where were they when he came back from the dead? They were hiding. They were defeated. But going forward, they would no longer be defeated because now they could see and feel and touch the one who was the resurrection and the life, you see. Um, how do we apply this? You know, in this story, we have, we have three conversations. I, I would suggest that for some here this morning, maybe what's needed is a fourth conversation. Maybe now is the time for that conversation, the conversation between you and God. Maybe there's a question that's gone unanswered. You've been asking and asking and asking. Jesus, why weren't you here? Maybe there's a prayer request that's just been buried deep in your heart. In fact, so deeply, you don't really want to bring it up anymore. Well, this would be a chance to talk honestly at a gut level with God, with Jesus. Maybe there's something that just is killing you. And it's time for a fourth conversation between you and God about that thing. And maybe it's not a conversation saying, make this go away, deliver me from this. Uh, maybe it's a different conversation. I'm going to ask you to kind of bow right now, if you would. And we're going to pray and Maybe this can be the, a launching platform for you later today to, do, to talk to God. Jesus, it can be hard sometimes for us to trust you. We just admit that. It can be hard to know because we can't see clearly what you're up to or where things are leading. We don't know what you're doing behind the scenes. We can't tell what these circumstances are all about. We don't understand why our circumstances are the way they are. And yet we are confronted with this amazing truth that you did not remain at a distance. You as God stepped into our world to be with us, to suffer for us, to go to that cross, to go into the tomb, to come out of the grave so that we could look forward to the one day when that will be our story. Your story will be our story. Your resurrection story becomes our resurrection story. You will cry out to us, come out, rise up. Jesus, help us cling to that hope this morning. Help us to believe. Help us to trust. Help us to hang on to the truth that you are the resurrection and the life. You hold the power over sin, over death, over sickness, over darkness, over evil. 
And because of that, there is nothing we have to fear, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You are able, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.